1: which means the heart-mind of awakening. Bodhi, is <coughs> Bodhi means awakening, and jitta is heart and mind together. And on the relative level, bodhijitta <coughs> is compassion, and that is realizing that our practice is not for ourselves alone, but that we can actually nurture the aspiration let all of our efforts, let our practice be not only for ourselves but for the welfare and benefit and awakening of all beings. (laughs) And we find this aspiration reflected in all of the different Buddhist traditions in different ways. Of course, the person who embodies it uh, so beautifully is the Dalai Lama. And he said, speaking of my own experience, I sometimes wonder why a lot of people like me. <laughs> when I think about it, I cannot find in myself any specially good quality except for one small thing. That is the kind heart, which I try to explain to others and which I do my best to develop myself. Of course, there are moments when I do get angry, but in the depth of my heart, I do not hold a grudge against anyone. That's a really key point. Of course, there are moments when I do get angry, but in the depth of my heart, I do not hold a grudge against anyone. I cannot pretend that I am really able to practice Bodhijitta, but it does give me tremendous inspiration. Deep inside me, I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. Just the kind heart, that aspiration that we're practicing for the welfare, for the benefit of all beings. And in the Pali can- <coughs> the Pali Canon, we find the same uh, the same impetus, the same aspiration. After the Buddha began teaching, uh, after some short time, there were sixty fully enlightened disciples, sixty Arhams. And this is the exhortation the Buddha gave to these 60 60 Arhans. He said, go forth, O bhikkhus, for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the good, benefit, and happiness of people and devas. Let not two go by one way. Teach the Dharma, excellent in the beginning, excellent in the middle, excellent in the end. Proclaim the noble life. Altogether perfect and pure. Work for the good of others, you who have done your duty. So, this is the message that really is embodied in the teachings. So, on the relative level, bodhicitta is compassion, this aspiration to work for the benefit of all. On the ultimate level, bodhicitta is the empty, aware nature of the mind itself. And it's said that when compassion and emptiness, the realization of emptiness, are both present, enlightenment is unavoidable. So that should be a good motivating idea for us to develop compassion and emptiness. Now a transforming realization in the practice, which which has tremendous implications, is to realize that this relative and ultimate, compassion and emptiness, are not polarities, but they're actually expressions of each other. And there's one teaching by a Tibetan master, I think 18th century, his name was Shabkar. And he gave one teaching which beautifully expresses the union of the relative and more ultimate, the union of compassion and emptiness. He said, the mind's nature is vivid, like a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. So tonight, I'd like to talk about each of these three aspects, what they mean, and how we can experience them in our own lives and practice. So how can we understand the term intrinsically empty? You know, for many people, this word in English, emptiness, doesn't sound all that appealing. You know, maybe we hear the word empty and emptiness and it sounds maybe like a gray vacuity, you know, kind of blank nothingness. That's often what we associate with emptiness. But in Buddhism, it has a very different meaning. It's the the usual translation of the Pali and Sanskrit word shunyata. And in the Buddhist teachings, shunyata has many deep and profound meanings that we can come to understand. Perhaps on the simplest level, we can understand emptiness to mean lack of self-centeredness. Now, usually we think of self-centeredness as being a personality problem. You know, someone who's just always thinking about themselves. But it actually has a deeper and more fundamental meaning. It's when we create or hold a sense of self to be at the very center of our lives. Self-centered. And this sense of self then becomes the reference point everything we do and everything we feel and everything we think, it all refers back to this sense of I. It's the idea or felt sense that there is someone behind the process to whom it's all happening. You know, and I think this is a common experience. We all have. My thoughts, my sensations, I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad. The usual way we are in the world is to refer everything back to this sense of self, to this self-center. Mostly we're living in this gravitational field, gravitational field of the self-center. Our hopes and our fears and our plans and our worries, our work and our relationships, don't they all refer back to some sense of I, some sense of me? You know, our lives revolve around desires for ever-new experiences, for the self to experience something new, even as we know that they're all changing and impermanent. It's amazing that we continue to do this, believing that somehow some new experience will fulfill us, even as we know that they won't. You know, but the habit pattern of it is so deeply habituated. But when we cultivate a wise and sustained attention through the growing power of mindfulness, of concentration, of wisdom, we begin to leave this self-referential orbit. We begin to... <coughs> Could say fall into or enter into the gravitational field of the Dharma. We get glimpses of the zero center of emptiness, rather than the self center of I and mine. The Sufi poet and sage Rumi, he summed it up really well. He said, "Live in the nowhere that you come from." even though you have an address here. So this is our challenge. You know, this is the great challenge of living both in the world of relative conventional reality you know, that we all mostly live in, the world of concepts, the world of language, the world of subject and object, of self and other. This is the world, the relative world that we do live in, so the challenge is to be able to live in that world and at the same time understand and realize the more ultimate truth of emptiness of self. So someone once asked a Tibetan teacher, is the self real? And he said, the Tibetan teacher replied, It's not that you're not real. We all think we're real. And that's not wrong. But you think you're really real. (laughs) You exaggerate it. So that's our problem. We think we're really real. So how do we exaggerate it and how can we learn to see underneath that or through that. We can experience the emptiness of self in many ways. And sometimes we get intimation of it in our ordinary lives. You know, maybe you've had the experience of sometimes when things, we seem to enter into an effortless flow. You know, maybe it's in sports, or maybe it's in music, or maybe it's at work, or in some creative project, or sometimes just being in nature. You know, we, we fall into a flow where everything seems to be going on by itself, you know, and much better for it. And so we get a glimpse, we get a taste of this selflessness. It's, it's as if we, we get out of the way. We sometimes can be reminded of this emptiness of self uh, by our teachers, you know, either through words or through their being. And one of our teachers was this uh, extraordinary woman, Deepa Ma. She was a student of Meningerjee's. Had a tremendous suffering in her life. She was married very young, <coughs> had three children. And then her husband died, two of her children died. So tremendous. She, was, she said she was overcome by grief. She actually thought she would die from that. It was so overwhelming. And she was living in Burma at the time. Um, and she realized she needed to do something, you know, to re engage with life. And being in Burma, she was able to go to a meditation center. And she had extraordinary, what in Buddhism is called paramis, or background. And in a very short time, she was able to realize high stages of enlightenment and the, the depths of concentration, all the powers of mind. She was extraordinary. And so I came to know her through Manindraji uh, when she had moved back to India. And she just exuded peace and love. That's all that was there. It was just peace and love. you know. And we would go and she would give us, in the Indian style, her blessings and, you know, Kind of run her hands over our heads and over our bodies, and it was just like being showered in in meta. So once she was teaching at IMS, she came to visit. I happened to see her as she walked into the meditation hall, and she came in and in the you know Asian uh, tradition, she bowed three times to the Buddha, and it was so extraordinary to see because. It wasn't Deepama bowing to the Buddha. It was like love bowing to love and wisdom bowing to wisdom. There was no one there. You know, and so just just being in the presence of someone like that, we maybe get a glimpse of what emptiness of self really is about. And what's left, you know, the beauty of what's left when we get out of the way. we can begin to experience emptiness of self in our meditation practice this lack of self-centeredness you know just the experience in sitting and walking or moving about and maybe you've had the experience even for just a few minutes at a time of just all the phenomena of mind and body just unfolding by itself no one really doing anything just the elements of mind and body. There's a, a beautiful phrase which came up for me a lot in my practice empty phenomena rolling on. And so it's just sitting or walking or being, it's just empty phenomena rolling on. We begin to see that there is no existent, independent thing that the words self or I refer to. So this is a very interesting investigation. You know, we use the word self, or use the pronoun I, but when we begin to investigate, okay, well, what does that refer to? We see that it doesn't refer to any self-existing thing. Self is like a big summer storm. You know, so there's rain and wind and lightning and thunder. There's no storm apart from those elements. What the storm is, is a designation for all of those changing elements of wind and rain. The word self, which is fine to use, and of course we use the pronouns, but we have to understand that it's simply a designation for this flow of changing mind-body elements. It's not that it refers to something in and of itself. And at times in our practice, as the momentum of mindfulness builds and the concentration becomes gradually stronger, we begin to see not only the elements which make up what we call self, and Pascal beautifully described it this morning in terms of those five rivers, we begin to see that all of these are changing with great rapidity. It's what I call NPMs, which are noticings per minute. You know, And in the beginning, our NPMs are pretty low, uh, maybe I don't know, 10 NPMs. But as we get some momentum going, the NPMs go way up. You know, and so even in one breath or one movement, we begin to notice so many arising and passing very, very quickly, and we understand more deeply that nothing lasts long enough to be called self. You know, when the mind has uh, settled into this kind of clarity, as soon as something arises, it's disappearing. There was a woman, uh, she lived in Colorado, who was one of the very early people who had practiced in Asia, uh, a generation before uh, I and my, some of my colleagues uh, went there. Uh, so she was a very early pioneer and you know, brought the teachings back to this country. And she had a great little saying. Her name was Jocelyn King. She said, it's better to stand on the firm ground of emptiness than the quicksand of somethingness. So I really like that. Because how often do we get lost in the quicksand of our emotions and thoughts and all of our stories and all of our dramas, forgetting their empty, selfless nature? So we begin to get a sense the experience of emptiness in our meditation practice. There's yet another way of understanding emptiness, which is very obvious in every aspect of our lives, and that is to see that things, experiences, are not amenable solely to our will. This is another meaning of the word anatta or shunyata, selflessness or emptiness. We cannot say with any hope of success at all, may my body never change, may it not age, may it never become ill. May I only have pleasant mind states. Wouldn't it be great if we could just come into the, oh, yes, this sitting, I'm going to only have pleasant mindsets, but it doesn't work like that because phenomena are ungovernable in the sense they are not amenable simply to our will. Every experience arises out of the appropriate causes and conditions. If the conditions are there, the experience arises. If the conditions are not there, they don't arise. They don't belong to us in a way that we can command. So reflecting on this and seeing this over and over again in our lives gives us a very tangible understanding of emptiness of self. Yes, things are ungovernable. And the Buddha taught one very powerful reflection which highlights this point, which. I found so useful, and it comes to my mind very often at the appropriate times. He said, you should reflect thus. What has the nature to become ill will become ill, and I am not exempt. What is the nature to grow old? will grow old, and I am not exempt. But as a nature to die will die, and I am not exempt. So the reason this reflection is so powerful is that one aspect of our delusion, one aspect of the distortions of perception and view that Anushka spoke of last night, is that for some strange reason, we think we are exempt until it hits us, you know. And then it seems, why? Why did this happen to me? And so very often, just in the course of you know my daily life, you know, you know, injured <laughs> myself a little bit. Uh, oh, and I am not exempt. You know, well this or that happens, and I am not exempt. And it reminds me to settle back into the understanding of the ungovernability, of the selfless nature of this whole process. The good news here, there is one little piece of good news, is that the more we see, and really connect with the ungovernability, the fact that things are following their own laws, just the laws of nature, the less we identify with these elements of mind and body. And the less we identify with the physical elements, with the body, with our thoughts, with our emotions, they're all layered. It's all that phenomenon is rolling on. The less we identify with them, the less we suffer. And as one Sri Lankan monk put it very well, no self, no problem. And that's really true. (laughs) So certain Buddhist traditions emphasize yet another aspect of emptiness. So there's the kind of, when we get into the flow of things, it's reflected through our teachers. We see it in our meditation practice when the momentum of mindfulness builds up and we see the rapidity of change. We experience it as the ungovernability of phenomena. All of these are ways for us to actually experience what emptiness means. So yet another meaning, which uh, is very uh, beautiful and profound, certain traditions emphasize the empty sky-like nature of the mind. So I want to read uh, just a few a few teachings on this, because it can reveal or can open to us a new way of understanding the nature of our own minds. So this is from an eleventh century Tibetan yogini, one of the great uh, yogis of that time. Her name was Machik Labdrön. My Tibetan pronunciation may not be too good. So she wrote, The defining characteristic of mind is to be primordially empty like space. The realization of the nature of mind includes all phenomena without exception. This mind of ours, so we're talking about our own minds, this mind of ours is empty and clear like the depths of space. Relax in that natural state, free of fabrication. Right now you have the opportunity. So It's being talking to us. Right now we have the opportunity. Look for the essence of mind. This is meaningful. When you look at mind, there's nothing to be seen. And in this very not seeing, you see the definitive meaning. This old lady has no instructions more profound than this to give you. When you look at mind, there's nothing to be seen. And in this very not seeing, you see the definitive meaning. Okay, in case you didn't get fully enlightened upon hearing that, we'll try again. This is from the teachings of Padma Sambhava, the great Indian adept who brought Buddhism from India to Tibet. He said, It is certain that the nature of mind is empty and without any foundation whatsoever. Your own mind is insubstantial like the empty sky. Look at your own mind to see whether this is so or not. This is a very direct instruction us to look at our own minds. This practice is not the deconstruction of the sense of self, as happens in some practices, but rather a direct recognition of the mind's empty nature. We can look into our own minds. You know, things are being known moment after moment, sounds and sights and smells and thoughts. So we can be aware of things being known, and then we can ask the question, known by what? This is the great mystery of awareness. It's quite amazing. Things are being known. Known by what? There's nothing to find, and yet the knowing is happening. Don't you find that interesting? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so the challenge of this uh, was expressed again really well in just a couple of lines from the Nobel Prize-winning poet, um, Polish poet Wislawa Szymborska. So she wrote, "There is so much everything." that nothing is hidden quite nicely. (laughs) We are so caught in the appearances of things that this emptiness of mind is hidden quite nicely until we look. So the freeing aspect of this recognition, of this understanding, is expressed in a very famous Zen dialogue between Bodhidharma and the person who was to become his uh, disciple. And it's in a Chinese name, again, I'm not sure of pronunciation, Huaika. So Bodhidharma is the person who brought Buddhism from India to China. And the legends are, you know, that he was this very fierce... Master, he's just sat in the cave staring at a wall for nine years. And Hweika comes and he wants teachings and Bodhidharma doesn't want to have anything to do with him. But finally, after a lot of perseverance, Bodhidharma comes out of his cave and Hweika says, my mind is distressed. Before before I go into the dialogue, a word of caution. You can hear it and you... When, you get to the, when we get to the end, you'll understand why I'm saying this. You can hear this as a kind of Zen witticism. Don't be fooled. There's actually a profound meaning in what's being taught. OK, so Bodhidharma comes out of the cave. Waker <coughs> comes up. My mind is distressed. Please pacify it. So Bodhidharma says, present me your mind and I will pacify it." Wake says, I've searched for it everywhere. I've searched for my mind everywhere, but I can't find it. It's that same teaching. Look for the mind, there's nothing to find. I've searched for it everywhere, but I can't find it. And Bodhidharma says, there, it is already pacified. When we're in that recognition, of the non-findability of the mind, of awareness. It is already pacified. And I really use this in a very practical way, not only <coughs> on retreat, but just in my life. I can you know, be going for a walk someplace and maybe my mind is ruminating about some difficulty or problem or whatever and I feel myself getting a little uh, worked up about it and because I'm so familiar with this dialogue, all I need to say f- for myself is, oh, already pacified. Just that, that. That's enough of this. And the mind drops back into that empty nature of awareness, already pacified. So, in all of these different ways, you know, and some of you may <coughs> key into one or another of these ways of understanding emptiness. In all of these different ways, we come to the actual experience of emptiness of self. But as Shabkar pointed out, the nature of the mind is not just intrinsically empty. He said, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant. So radiant here means that quality of luminosity, or the, the quality of awareness, the knowing capacity, the cognizing capacity of mind. Dasa, who was one of the great Thai masters of the last century, he said, we should really call mind emptiness, but because of the awareness faculty, we call it mind. So you understand, mind is the union of emptiness and clarity, the innate capacity to know. So maybe one way of getting a sense of what this means. At one point I was in a bookstore and I was just browsing the shelves and I saw this book with a title that completely caught my eye. The title of the book was, The Nothing That Is. And I, I just thought it was going to be this fantastic book on Buddhist teachings. It turns out <coughs> that it was a book on the history of the number zero. The, num- uh, the nothing that is. That, that phrase, to me, so described the nature of mind the nothing that is. And the first lines of the book, just put it out so beautifully, look at zero and you see nothing. Look through it and you see the world. So this is all about the history of the number zero. (laughs) But it really could be talking about the nature of mind. Look at zero and you see nothing. Look at the mind, you can't find it. Look through it and you see the world. So the nature of mind is empty, like space. What I call channel zero. You know, it's just that channel zero. And it has an innate wakefulness. this, This capacity to know. So we might call it the cognizing power of emptiness. Now, this is not something that we're lacking and we need to find. It's not something we need to get. This is the very nature of our minds. So it's simply something we have to recognize and come back to again and again. Letting go of the various and sometimes subtle attachments that obscure it. So there are many teachings about this. Suzuki Roshi, uh, the founder of San Francisco Zen Center, he had a wonderful expression. He said, everything is perfect, but there is a lot of room for improvement. So this is our practice. (laughs) It's to understand that, yes, everything is empty and still we get caught by the habit patterns of attachment and aversion. So it's realizing both. In the Pali Canon, in the Buddhist words, he said, luminous bhikkhus, and remember, bhikkhus here refers to everyone on the path. Luminous bhikkhus is the mind. It is defiled by visiting defilements. So all the defilements, the you know hindrances, they're not inherent to the mind. the, the, The terminology they use is adventitious, which means it's not inherent to the mind, but they come as visitors. Luminous because is the mind. It is defiled by visiting defilements. Luminous is the mind. It is freed from visiting defilements. Because they're visiting, we actually have the power to recognize the luminous nature again from another Tibetan teacher Zigar Kongtrul. and I, I'm saying all this as a way of trying to point that this experience is not some mystical far-off thing it's actually accessible to us right, if we look if we investigate so he wrote the experience of emptiness is not found outside the world of ordinary appearance it's not it's not out there, someplace. The experience of emptiness is not found outside the world of ordinary appearance, as many people mistakenly assume. In truth, we experience emptiness when the mind is free of grasping at appearance. So, do you see the possibility of accessing this? This is not some far off, distant state. We experience emptiness of mind, emptiness of self, in those moments when the mind is free of grasping. An image that describes this movement from attachment to awareness, from the deluded mind of self-center to the wisdom mind of the zero-center, is the image of ice and water. So ice is hard, ice is solid, ice is frozen. And this is the experience of mind, the contraction of mind, when it's lost in thoughts, when it's lost in past, in future, in desires. Ice is when the mind is even fixated on the present moment. Ice is when we're lost in the movies of our minds. Ice is when we're identified with any arising experience. It's the contraction of mind when we're identified with anything in the body, any sensations or thoughts or emotions, even with awareness itself. When we're identified with that, the mind becomes ice. So just notice during the course of a day, how many times the mind enters into this contracted state, moments of getting caught up in wanting, or irritation, or worry, or impatience, or fear. All of that is the contraction of ice. Or attached to pleasant states, we become attached to concentration, or attached to calm, or attached to rapture. Again, the mind has become ice. Water represents the nature of awareness. Intrinsically empty, naturally radiant. So water is this radiance of mind, the flow of awareness, consciousness which is free of self-center. So water is unfrozen. Water is the mind that is unfixated on what is arising. Now there's a great discovery here, and the discovery is that water is nothing other than melted ice. It's coming out of a movie theater and realizing all of that was only a movie. It wasn't really happening for all of our involvement in it. It was just pixels of light on a screen. It's coming out of an intense mind drama. You know. So we're lost in the drama that's ice, and in the moment of coming out of it, of realizing that it's just thoughts in the mind or images in the mind, ice melts and becomes water. What's helpful to remember is that this awareness ice becoming water, is not some far-off state. It's always available. It's rather this very mind unfrozen, free of clinging, free of attachment. But we also need a lot of care here, because sometimes we think we're in the free flow of water, (coughs) but it's really slush. And this is the mind where it's, things are going pretty smoothly but there are subtle attachments that we may not be seeing. You know, subtle likes or dislikes. Or even being swept along in the drift of very light thoughts. You know, thoughts that are not disturbing. Have you had the experience either in sitting or walking? where you really fairly present and reasonably concentrated and just these wisps, wisps of thought are going through. And in those moments, uh, the mind is caught up for a few moments. So it's not a big dramatic thing, but that's still slush. You know, we're still caught in those moments. Now, an interesting point is that although ice and water are essentially the same thing, we experience them very differently. So our minds are always selfless, but they are not always free. And so this is what our practice is about. It's realizing, experiencing the emptiness of self, freeing the mind from attachment, from fixation, so we actually experience the freedom of it. When there is this open, unobstructed nature of awareness, empty of the contraction of self, we experience the third aspect of the nature of the mind. Intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. So as our practice unfolds in this way and we become increasingly empty of self-reference, there is a growing and spontaneous responsiveness to situations. So it's like water flowing down a mountain responding completely appropriately to the contours of the earth. It actually finds the shortest way given the topography. So as... We loosen this self center. As we're in the flow of awareness, that happens quite spontaneously uh, to have a greater responsiveness and an active engagement with the suffering in the world. Ceaselessly responsive means being responsive to the world around us. You know, and increasingly we're able and motivated to respond to the needs of beings in whatever way is possible, in whatever way is appropriate. So this, is compa- this responsiveness is compassion not as a meditative stance. Right? It's not some stance that we're cultivating, but rather it is the responsiveness of an open heart, of an open mind. And it can show itself, this compassionate responsiveness, in so many different ways. It manifests in so many different ways. It can manifest very beautifully as forgiveness. So a few years ago there was an interview uh, with Aung San Suu Kyi, who was the leader of the democracy movement in Burma. She had been under house arrest for many, many years. I I don't remember the exact number, but 10, 12, 15 years under house arrest. Finally, she was released, and in this interview, it was with an Australian paper, she was asked, you know, after going through this, don't you want to bring the generals down? You know, the, the, the generals who had been ruling Burma. And she said no. I want to bring them up. Well, that's a beautiful response in the face of that suffering. And even more, perhaps striking and much more recent, and you're probably all familiar with this. You know, in the aftermath of the tragedy in Charleston, South Carolina, you know, and what was happening afterwards the ability and capacity of the family members, of those who were killed, to forgive the person who brought so much devastation to that community. So that was, that was an extraordinary act of open-hearted compassion and responsiveness. You know, it, was, it was really quite inspiring. Sometimes, Compassion manifests as the willingness to learn. So sometimes it manifests can manifest as forgiveness, sometimes as the willingness to learn. Recognizing that compassion arises, the cause for ca- compassion to arise, is our willingness to come close to suffering. You know, and we know from our own experience that's not always easy. We don't. We often don't like to open either to our own pain or to others. But this is what compassion requires. It requires a growing ability to come close. But it's often so easy just for us to live in our comfort zone You know, in life. We've created a certain zone where things are familiar and comfortable, and very often we don't like to open to the suffering that's there. And I've experienced this really clearly and in, in, in a really beautiful way for myself. In the work we're doing at IMS, and I believe here it's Rock as well, in undoing racism. So we've really undertaken as an institution, you know, to commit to this and to learn about this. And there's been a tremendous learning curve, I and mean, it's been surprising to me you know how how closed i and others were to the suffering that's that's out there and the work required to really open ourselves to it you know really learning about just all the forms of inst- institutionalized oppression in this country you know one of one of the the really powerful lessons for me was just in understanding one aspect of white privilege and even that phrase when I first like in a lot of the undoing racism workshops that's a point that's raised a lot you know that there is white privilege in our society and just hearing that phrase at first from it was uncomfortable you know I didn't I didn't like hearing it but in opening to the suffering that's there and how things are working in our society, it became so obvious. And one of the uh, very meaningful realizations about it was that as a white person, I actually didn't have to think about the oppression. it It was easy to live a life, especially in Barry, Massachusetts, which is not a very diverse, racially diverse community, very easy just not to have to think. That's, that's an aspect of white privilege. And so it takes a willingness, it takes a kind of courage to say, okay, this stuff to learn here, you know, about ourselves, about society. Because it's only by our willingness to open to this, to see this, that this compassionate responsiveness uh, can flower. And really what we're doing here on retreat serves this very same end, because to the degree that we learn to open to our own pain and suffering, which as you know can be difficult. How many of you when you come in to sitting and there's some pain in the body, oh good, this, this is really a good chance for me to explore. <laughs> uh, we may get to that point, but the initial reaction is probably not that. You know, oh, I don't want to feel this. So the more we do the work here on retreat with our own difficulties, our own distress, our own suffering, the greater ability we have to be open to the willingness to open to the suffering that's in the world around us, in our society. Compassion. So compassion can manifest as acts of forgiveness. It can manifest as this willingness to open, this willingness to learn. It can manifest in acts of tremendous courage and determination. Maya Angelou, the great poet, she wrote, courage is the most, the highest of all the virtues because without courage, You cannot practice any other virtue consistently. You can be anything erratically, kind, true, generous, fair, merciful, just, any of those things occasionally. But to be that thing time after time demands that you have courage. And I think Kamala was speaking about when she was speaking about compassion. Courage is that strength of the heart. And there are beings who really manifest compassion with that sense of courage you know i think of uh, you know dr martin luther king jr and seeing uh, you know the films of him leading some of the marches in both the north and the south surrounded by the energy of hatred you know that was the energy uh, that was present and his ability to maintain an open heart in the face of that—well, that's that's tremendous. That takes tremendous courage. You know, Nelson Mandela in South Africa. I have I had taught in South Africa. It is a miracle that that transition happened. You know, from apartheid uh, to self determination without major violence and bloodshed. It's a miracle. Why? Because of the amazing leadership quality of Mandela. You know? So this has tremendous impact in society, this, this quality of the heart that we are cultivating here. There's no prescription for what we should do. There is no hierarchy of compassionate action. You know, it's not as if, oh, this kind of action is better or higher than some kind of other response to suffering. The field of compassion is the field of suffering beings, and that is limitless. And so with courage, if we, if we strengthen that courage in ourselves, that strength of heart, to be with pain, to be with suffering, to see it, the willingness to see it, then we each find our own way. You know, and it may be a very active engagement with the world. And it may be sitting in a cave meditating with the aspiration to awaken for all beings. Just think of the Bodhisattva, the Buddha before his enlightenment, and again in the Buddhist cosmology, you know, the sense of many, many lifetimes. How many lifetimes did he live as a solitary renunciate? in a cave, practicing all the qualities of Buddhahood. And just imagine his family and friends saying, what are you doing? You're not helping the world. You're not doing anything. And yet it was all of that work that eventually flowered in the huge compassionate energy of his awakening, which we are benefiting from 2,600 years later. So we don't want to take a narrow slice of life and then become judgmental of how people are manifesting this aspiration to help, to be of service. It can happen in so many ways. And we each find our own way. So I'd just like to close with its a teaching from a wonderful young Tibetan Rinpoche Perhaps some of you have met him, but I think he's been here perhaps, uh, mingyu impeche, And just a little anecdote about him. A very, very young, very bright and luminous being. And he spent some years setting up a worldwide network of centers and groups and teachings. And, and then he took off for more than three years to wander in, as a as a yogi in Nepal and Tibet, and he you know he'd arrange for all these groups to be taken care of in a certain way. It's quite amazing, mm. very tempting. <laughs> 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 anyway, so this is this is what he wrote. But the best part of all is that no matter how long you meditate or what technique you use, every technique of Buddhist meditation ultimately generates compassion, whether we are aware of it or not. Whenever you look at your own mind, you can't help but recognize your similarity to those around you. When you see your own desire to be happy, you can't avoid seeing the same desire in others. And when you look clearly at your own fear and anger or aversion, you can't help but see that everyone around you feels the same fear and anger and aversion. When you look at your own mind, all the imaginary differences between yourself and others automatically dissolve, and the ancient prayer of the four immeasurables become as natural and persistent as your own heartbeat. May all sentient beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all sentient beings be free of suffering and free of the causes of suffering. May all sentient beings have joy and the causes of joy. And may all sentient beings remain in great equanimity, free from attachment and aversion. This this really is the great work that we're all doing together.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, slash insight hour.